Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. You can follow along with me in your pew Bible, your own Bible, your smartphone Bible, or just in the bulletin where it's been provided free of charge for you. Uh, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's so great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slate, and I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad that you're with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, college students could be moving out of their dorms now that school, uh, now that the semester's almost over. Uh, others of you who are pickleball players could be at the Harmony Pickleball Tournament uh, winning uh, on the finals day, or you could be at home working on your nunchuck skills, uh, but you're not doing any of those things. Uh, you're here with us this morning, and we're really thankful that you're here. It's good to have you with us. There's nothing better that you could do with your time, really, than worship Jesus and to consider his claims upon your life and the beauty of his kingdom. And so I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. Uh, What is Redeemer? Uh, Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so we gather together to, you know, throw throwing stars and nunchucks and play pickleball and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love, as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it will spill out into the entire world, right? That's who are people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we uh, reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in this series on gifts of resurrection as seen in the letter to the Romans. And so we're considering all these resurrection themes. And this morning, what I want us to think about is resurrection power, right? Resurrection power. So with that in mind, let's look together. Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone uh, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. Who dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, we truly are thankful that you are a God not hidden nor silent, but one who loves to make yourself known. And you have done that uh, in your word and by your spirit and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And so it is our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, that you and your grace and your mercy would attend unto us to show us the power of your resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to risk telling you about the beginning of my week, uh, but I want to be clear, uh, I'm not looking for sympathy, uh, and I'm fine. All right. So my week began uh, by uh, being woken up in the middle of the night uh, on, or on Sunday night, Monday morning, with a gout flare. Now, uh, the great thing about a gout flare is that gout is called the disease of kings. And so every time you get a gout flare, you're reminded you're regal. Uh, But the bad thing about a gout flare is that it's really painful. And so that morning I wake up, there's a lot of pain in my foot, and uh, I'm not able to do my morning workout or run. And whenever I can't do my morning workout or run, it leaves me uh, as Mr. Grumpy Pants. Uh, Later that morning, after not having been able to work out, I then got in my car to drive up to Tenova Health Center to get my second vaccine, which means that I'm now a walking science experiment. And uh, immediately my lymph nodes began uh, to swell up under my arm like a softball, which was great preparation for my softball game that was there in the evening. And by evening time, my arm was really sore. It was hard to lift up my arm. But just because I'm sure you want to know, I still went four for four, uh, and I hit in uh, the final run to win the game. But that's kind of just an aside. Uh, But what's more important about my going four for four is that, uh, thank you very much, Olivia, for clapping. Uh, But what's more important than me going four for four is that on my third at bat, I pulled my groin. And so, like Sam Malone on Cheers, I now know what it's like to have a gr- gr- groin injury. And uh, it was so painful. Uh, I'm holding my leg together after hitting the ball, like, it, you know, running down the plate, just holding the leg together. I couldn't walk. Um, Paul Michael, not a massage therapist. He wants everybody to know, but a true life physical therapist, like, checked my hip for the integrity of my hip and all this sort of stuff. I couldn't walk couldn't drive, and then by the time I was trying to go to bed, my leg was not in a good place. It was very painful, and just as I was lying down, the vaccine kicked in, and so uh, lots of pain, uh, lots of chills, uh, lots of sweating, very tired, and not very much sleep. I'm fine now, uh, uh, but at the time, I felt incredibly powerless and incredibly weak, and everything that I really wanted to go do, I could not do. 
but it was amazing because I didn't just feel powerless. For some reason, in the midst of my weakness, I also felt incredibly stupid. And I said to a friend of mine, I'm such an idiot, I'm so stupid. And as soon as those words sort of came out of my mouth, I began to realize that I'm condemning, I was condemning myself, right, for my weakness. And I felt unworthy, I felt dumb, I felt unlovable because I was weak. And I felt like a fool, right, because I couldn't do those things that I wanted to do. And so in order to pump myself up, I put on uh, the song Power, uh, by Will I Am and the Beebs, and I'm sure most of you know this song. It goes like this: And oh, I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! And oh, I can fly! I can fly! I can fly! And oh, I'm alive! I'm alive! I'm alive! And I'm loving every second, minute, hour, bigger, better, stronger, power. I got that power. Right, I got that power, I got that power. It's an amazing song. And the reason I tell you this is because uh, the beginning of my week sort of served as a metaphor for entering into Romans uh, chapter 8 in the same way that Romans chapter 7 prepares us to enter into Romans chapter 8. And if you remember in Romans chapter 7, Paul has been struggling with his own weakness and he is looking for, crying out for a new power to meet him in his weakness. And there in Romans chapter 7, he says, like, I know uh, that the law of God is good. And I know that I am supposed to do it. And I want to do it. But I don't. And I can't. And so he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And when you read that verse, it is this incredibly honest moment. And I think it's a statement that resonates with most of us. I can't do what I want. I know what I'm supposed to do. I can't do it. I'm weak. I'm foolish. I'm wretched. And not only that, I'm guilty. Who will deliver me? And then he gives this really beautiful answer to his own cry there in Romans chapter 7, verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hey, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what he's saying is this, that though I am weak, right, God is strong. Right? Though I am weak, God is strong. But the question is, how is it then that God's strength and God's power is given to those of us who are weak? And that's the point of chapter 8. That there is this new power that is at work in the midst of our weakness. There's a new power that is at work in the midst of our weakness. And it is the power of the resurrection. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I don't know if you heard it or not, but do you hear him saying that the power of the resurrection dwells within you, right? The power of the resurrection dwells within you. And if you are a Christian, right, this is your hope that the power of the resurrection dwells within you. So much so that you can say that though I am weak, right, the power of the resurrection dwells within me. 
right? The power of the resurrection dwells within me. Would you say that with me? The power of the resurrection dwells within me. And because the power of the resurrection dwells within us, what that means is verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And this is amazing, right? Because uh, what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now dwelling in us in such a way that we are now united to Christ. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but by virtue of being united to Christ, what that means is that we're united to his death and we're united to his resurrection, such that when Jesus died, we died. That when Jesus rose, we rose. And this is significant because Jesus' death was our condemnation. That when Jesus died, he died because we are guilty. He died in our place. His death was our condemnation. And this makes sense of what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Right? The consequence of sin is death. And when Paul is saying that, it's just a reminder of what we had been taught in Genesis chapter 2 in the garden when God said, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And the point is this, that death and condemnation are the consequence of our disobedience. Right? Death and condemnation are the consequence of our disobedience. Now here's what I find fascinating about Christianity. Almost every religion has a law, right? Uh, and we all have fairly similar laws, these lists of things that we're supposed to do in order to please God and to be acceptable in His sight. And it's not only religions, it's also cultures. Every culture has a set of laws and rules that we must follow in order to be pleasing and acceptable to the community. And I think many of us would affirm many of these rules. I mean, we all know that Judaism and Mormonism and Christianity all have the Ten Commandments. Islam has its own sort of version uh, of it in the way that uh, in the Quran it's sort of broken up in different ways. Uh, but we also know that secularism, though it would maybe deny the first four commandments of God, they still hold to the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, straight out of the mouth of Jesus. And we all agree that these are good laws, these are good rules, but here's the deal. None of us keep them. None of us keep them. And so the question is, what happens when you break them? What happens when you break them? Do you just try harder? Do you brush it off as no big deal? And what seems interesting to me is that most religious people uh, will tell us, just try harder and do more law in order to make up for the broken law. So what do you do when you break the law? You do more law to break up for the broken law. But here's the problem. How does doing more law fix a broken law? Right? The law is already broken. And this is the problem that James picks up in James chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. If someone obeys all God's law except one, that person is guilty of breaking all of them. For whomever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
And so what James is saying is this. He's saying once you break the law, you can't fix it. Right? Once you break the law, the law is broken. Once you broke the law, you're guilty. And if you're guilty, then you're guilty. And so that means, like, if you lie once, when you lie, you became a liar. It's not just, I didn't lie this time and this time and this time and this time. It's like, well, I lied this time. Okay, you're a liar. You broke the law. Right? It's to think about a bank robber, right? I mean, a bank robber doesn't, we don't say, well, well done not robbing all the banks. (laughs) You robbed a bank. Therefore, by definition, you're a bank robber. It's soon. This is free of charge. As soon as you rob a bank, you're, you become a bank robber, right? And, and the same would be true for a murderer. You know, we don't, you know, you murder, you didn't murder everybody. You murdered one person. Once you murder the person, you became a murderer, right? And, uh, and here's the fact. I mean, whether, you know, it's not murder, bank robbery, whatever, but we're all guilty. Whether murder or, or stealing, we're all liars. We've all cheated. Uh, we all struggle to control our bodies, our minds, and our desires. We're all greedy. We all struggle to love God. We all covet, hence the new Zillow Covenant Eyes app that we all need as we're looking at houses uh, because of this amazing real estate market. Uh, but uh, we're all guilty, right? And it seems like uh, in our secular culture, one of the things that we hate is guilt. And we hate the idea that there would be a God who might judge us in our guilt. And so in order to kind of get rid of all that, we sort of tried to beat God to the punch. And we judged him as intolerant and mean. And so we've excommunicated God from our lives. But what's fascinating is that by excommunicating God, uh, we haven't gotten rid of the guilt and we haven't got rid of the, the need for the guilt to be dealt with. And so what I have found fascinating is that by getting rid of God, we've just uh, taken his place. And we've become the judges. And so because of the guilt that's all around us, we now get angry at people's guilt and we want them to pay for it. And we feel like it's our responsibility now to look for other people's guilt and make them pay. And so we call each other out and we deconstruct everyone and everything. And we demand tolerance, right, while condemning uh, difference. Just this week, I was reading a recent article in GQ called The Redemption of Justin Bieber. And it's not because I read GQ, it's just because I'll read anything about Justin Bieber. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but Justin Bieber uh, seems to have become a real deal Christian. And in the article, uh, the writer is trying to figure out how Justin has become a more healthy person and what brought about this change in his life. And here's a quote that he writes. He says, it is beautiful to hear Justin talk about God. He is grace, Justin says. Every time we mess up, he's picking us back up. Every single time. That's how I view it. And so it's like, I made a mistake. I won't dwell in it. I don't sit in shame. But it actually makes me want to do better. And then the author sort of inserts this parenthetical statement. And perhaps this is convenient Bieber has done a lot of things in his life that need forgiving. And an ethos of total acceptance can be alarmingly close to an ethos of total impunity, of being right in your deeds no matter how bad or dark or selfish they are. I think it's really amazing that that this author in GQ has actually become the old SNL church lady 
right? Well, isn't that convenient, Justin? <laughs> you know, uh, you can do whatever you want because you're the Biebs. Um, and then later on in the article, as he, he goes on, uh, Justin talks about how hard it is to grow up with all this fame and with all this money and how fame and how money actually break you and how humans weren't made to be famous. And he talks about the brokenness of his life and the author says, don't feel sorry for Justin and people like him. They had everything. And what I find so sad about reading this article is that the author is like amazed at the transformation of Justin Bieber. But at the same time, he wants the condemnation of Justin Bieber. And throughout the entire article, Justin just keeps echoing the theme that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But throughout the article, the author, like most of our culture, is just bothered by this idea of forgiveness. That somehow Justin got, get, is just getting away with it. And if Justin has been forgiven, then sort of the universe is just out of balance. And that if God can forgive him, then God must t- not take sin as seriously as we take sin. And fundamentally, what he's getting at is this idea that forgiveness is unfair. And what the author is crying out for is justice. What the author wants is someone to pay for all the bad things that he had done. And the author's right. Right? There needs to be justice. And that's the point of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That God doesn't overlook sin, that God doesn't ignore sin, that he actually hates sin so much that someone has to die for it. And it is either going to be us or it's going to be him. And the cross of Jesus is the moment where God condemned himself for our sin. And when he rose, the Bible tells us that he rose for our justification. And what that means is that when Jesus died, he died for our guilt. And that when he rose, he rose to prove to the world that his life was acceptable to the Father. And so that if you believe in Jesus, what the resurrection tells you is that you're not just not guilty, but you're actually righteous in God's sight. And therefore, the resurrection is telling us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation because Jesus rose to new life. There is therefore now no condemnation because the power of the resurrection dwells within me. The power of the resurrection dwells within me. Say that with me. The power of the resurrection dwells within me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And it's important to note that Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation. Paul does not say that there is therefore now no sin. And this is important uh, because the Spirit of God is not so much wanting to rub our nose in our sin. The Spirit of God is wanting to warm our hearts to Jesus. And yet, sadly, so often as Christians, we go the reverse. And what we want to do is rub one another's noses in their sin. 
And so we become a people who love to say, look at the law, look at the law, look at the law. I mean, don't you know what God says? Don't you know that God says don't lie? Don't you know that God says don't steal? Don't you know that God wants you to be generous and go to church and be good? Of course we know that. That's not the problem. The problem is we don't do what we know we ought to do. The problem is that we do these things that we hate. And Paul is saying to us, I want you to look at the resurrected Jesus. Because in him there is therefore now no condemnation. And is it not true that when you see the beauty of Jesus, and the goodness of Jesus, and the forgiveness of Jesus, and the mercy of Jesus, that you want to be better? When you see how good and beautiful and true he is, do you not want to be a different person? And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us that Jesus is more powerful than the law. The law cannot save you. The law has no power to save you. The law has no power to even help you. What the law does is it tells you what to do and then it condemns you when you don't do it. One of my seminary professors, a guy named Brian Chappell, used to say it this way. He said, the fact of the matter is that each and every law is an individual death sentence. Each and every law just tells you that you deserve to die. The law's right, the law's good, it's true, it's even beautiful. But I have broken them all. And because of that, I deserve death. But here's what's amazing about the God of Christianity. Uh, God supplies everything that he requires. Our God supplies everything that he requires. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so what he's saying in these verses is that Jesus obeyed the law for us. And not only did he obey the law for us, he gave his obedience to us. And then notice what else he does. He gives his spirit to us in order to begin working his life into us. And this is powerful because the Spirit of God is the power of the Christian life, not the law, right? The Spirit of God is the power of the Christian life, not your own efforts. It is God himself who empowers Christianity. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 9 when he says the Spirit of God dwells in you. In the same way that like half, of, like half of my old north neighbors moved into these broken down old houses that had no life in them. And they began to rehab them and build them back up and fill them with new life. Uh, and that's what the Spirit is doing. Moving into our dead lives, our broken lives, and filling them with new life. I mean, think about it. Over and over again in the Bible, uh, God tells us that we're dead in our sin. That we're dead to God. We're dead to the law. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, look, when the Spirit of God moves in, he resurrects you. When the Spirit of God moves in, he gives you new life. Look at verse 11. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, look, if you are a Christian, then you have been made alive by the spirit. And this is really huge, I think, because so often in our lives we feel alone in our fight against sin. We feel overwhelmed. We feel defeated. We feel like we're never going to be different. We feel like we could never change. But what Paul is telling us is that the power of the resurrection dwells within me. And because the power of the resurrection dwells within me, I'm not alone. I'm not helpless. I'm not hopeless. I'm not dead. But God has begun to work his life into me, and he's making me new. And sometimes God does this very quickly, right? And sometimes he does this really slowly. But his life has begun to flow in and through me to work his life and to work his love into me. And this is what the old theologians called vital union. That, that we are united to Jesus in a vital way, that the vitality of Jesus, the life of God is being worked into us. That the very same spirit that breathed life into the lifeless Adam in the garden is the very same spirit that breathed life into the lifeless body of Jesus in the garden in the tomb is the very same spirit that now breathes life into us. Right? The power of the resurrection dwells within me. The power of the resurrection dwells within me. Would you say that with me? The power of the resurrection dwells within me. But how do you know? <laughs> how do you know if the Spirit dwells within you? And Paul hints at this question in verse 9, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells within you. Uh, well, some people might answer this and say, well, you know that you have the Spirit if you no longer sin. If you no longer sin, you have the Spirit, right? And though a life in rebellion to God and a heart that is hardened and hostile to God may be an indication that the Spirit's not at, at work in you, it is also true uh, that the Scriptures uh, say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I hope you hear what he's saying. He's saying, uh, one of the ways you know that the Spirit of God is alive in you is that you're honest about your sin and you confess it to Jesus. And one of the things that's really fascinating, this is an aside, and it maybe goes back to the first point. I want you to notice that it says that, uh, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is amazing. He doesn't say that he's faithful and merciful. He's faithful and just. And what that means is that forgiveness is actually an act of justice. Because God paid what we owed. God paid what we owed, and because Jesus has already paid for our sins, it's done, it's gone, it's paid for, and now it would be unjust for God to not forgive us and to punish us for our sins if Christ has already been punished in our place. And here's the point. Christians aren't those who have no sin. Christians are those who confess their sin. 
and they turn from their sin to Jesus. We are those who are honest about our weakness. We're honest about our need for Christ and our need for his grace. And that is the work of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit of God is the one who helps us to see rightly. The one who helps us to see Jesus. I mean, think about the way the Bible talks about us in our sin. The Bible says that we're blind. And blind people don't see, but what the Spirit does is gives sight, gives us sight. He helps us to see what is good and true and beautiful. He helps us to see who we are and who we were meant to be. And most importantly, he turns our eyes to Jesus. Those who are blind can't see Jesus. Those who are blind don't see their need for Jesus. Those who are blind don't care about their sin. They don't care what God has to say. They're actually hostile to God. Verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God's law, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And here's the point. Therefore, if uh, you don't care about your sin, if you don't care what God has to say, if you're hostile to him and want nothing to do with him, you might not have the Spirit of God. But if you even care about this conversation, like if you even care about your sin, if you're even worried about this, if your sin makes you sad, if you wish you were different, if you're beginning to see the world in new ways, if you're beginning to look at your life and think my life needs to change and become more like his, if you're beginning to see new things that Jesus seems to care about, that's the Spirit dwelling within you. What's that going to feel like? Well, sometimes it might feel like raising your hands and shaking your hips, you know. But at other times, it's really going to feel like tension. It's going to feel like sorrow over your sin. It's going to feel like a struggle, a battle within you. It's going to look like confession and repentance. And these are all the things that the Spirit is trying to do in our lives, right? To give us sight. Sight that we would see Jesus. The one who gives all that he requires. And that's what this table is all about. Here at this table, what's happening is Jesus is giving everything that he requires. And we come to this table because it's Jesus who gives us everything. And here at this table, we see the, the body and the blood of Christ that were given for us. He provides what we need. And therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation. And he says, come to me, not with anything, but just come to me and feast upon me and I will give you my life. The resurrection life of Christ is given to us by the Spirit as we participate in him here at this table. And so what this table is reminding us of is that our God uh, supplies everything that he requires. That in our weakness, our God is strong because the resurrection power dwells within me. All right, say that one last time. The resurrection power dwells within you.